simulate doubt and discouragement and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near? Or do you reason with yourself that given your circumstances, he must be far, far away? Do you encourage yourself to run to God even when you don't understand what he's doing? Or do you give yourself permission to kind of back away from him when you're confused by the seeming distance between what he's promised and what you're experiencing? Here's a good question. When others are talking to you, is your internal conversation so loud that you have a tough time even focusing on what they're saying? And this is kind of the main question I want to ask you as we kick off today. How wholesome, faith-driven, and Christ-centered is the conversation that you have with you every day. No one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. In this unending conversation, it's always going. You started, it started right when you woke up this morning. It's gonna continue until you go to bed at night. And it's even going on right now. Right now, as you're processing what I'm saying, this conversation is going on within you. So this morning, let's just pause and let's take a few moments to examine this conversation taking place within yourself each and every day. Because even though this conversation is constantly going within us, we hardly, I mean, let's be honest, we hardly ever pause and really evaluate the content of this conversation, right? Most of us probably don't even consider it that influential in our lives. But I I think we'd be mistaken because this conversation that's always going on within you is the most influential voice in your life. It's more influential than your parents, your spouse, your pastors, your classmates. It's more influential than even God and his word at times because it's always going. Apart from God's activity in our lives every day, this conversation and the content of this conversation is the difference maker in your soul each and every day. And there's a direct relationship between the content of this unending conversation and this, the state of your soul each and every day. So today by examining this content in light of Holy Scripture and by informing it with Holy Scripture, I believe this will make all the difference by God's grace in your soul and in your life. In Psalm 42, We have a unique opportunity. We get to eavesdrop on the internal conversation going on within the life of the psalmist. We get to overhear him as he evaluates this unending conversation taking place in his soul. And more than that, he he shares his struggle with us. So today, we're, we're gonna, there's basically two simple points. Here's the movement. He starts out as a very troubled soul and he moves to being a hopeful soul. Those are the two points. Let's dive in. First of all, the troubled soul. And I apologize if this is a heavier sermon today, but the content is heavy because of what we're pointing at. Believe me, we are going to move to hope. Does that sound good? All right, you guys with me? So as we eavesdrop on this internal conversation, we notice something. It's pretty obvious all is not well within the soul of the psalmist. I mean, the mood is heavy. And, and his soul is troubled. The conversation going on in his soul is troubling. He says in verse 5 and 11, he keeps, he keeps saying, my soul is downcast and in turmoil. And maybe as you sit here today, you're familiar with this experience yourself. 
Maybe moments ago as we read through this psalm, the content or the mood of the psalm kind of resonated within the corridors of your soul. I mean, if, if we're honest, to differing degrees, I think we're all familiar with the experience of the psalmist, of a soul that's struggling. And if you're not, we definitely, none of us are exempt from experiencing this at some point in our life. But if we're not prepared, we're gonna be vulnerable to failure when we have this experience. So what I love about the psalm is that the psalmist, in effect, prepares us for this experience. He identifies with us in this experience and he teaches us how to respond to this experience. If you're familiar with an aching soul, this psalm informs you that your struggle is not unique and you are not alone. I love the way David Pallison says it. He says, the Psalms have always been favorites of God's people because they express honest human experience and emotion in the context of faith. In the Psalms, you meet God right where you are. And that's what we have in the Psalm. We have honest human emotion but what I love about it is that it's couched in the context of faith. So it's a safe place to explore what's going on. And we see three experiences that have troubled the soul of the psalmist. Three experiences that I think we're all familiar with. The first one, he's troubled by the absence of God. Now this, this psalmist, he's a godly man. He's the son of Korah. He leads people in temple worship, right? He's a Levite. And notice that this psalm, it doesn't start off with him being troubled in soul. It starts off with him being thirsty, thirsty for God. He says in verse one and two, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So initially the psalmist, he describes himself as thirsty for God, not necessarily cast down or troubled. He's passionate about God. He's passionately pursuing God. He's He's not indifferent toward God. He's not like hiding from God or running from God in shame and guilt and hidden sin. No, there's, there's a pronounced thirst for God. And this passion for God is so pronounced, he compares it to a deer desperate for water in a time of drought. So this, he has this intense appetite. He's thirsty for God. He's desperate, but yet his soul is downcast. Now, how's that possible? How is it possible to yearn for God that much and yet be so downcast in your soul? Well, his soul is downcast and in turmoil because even though he longs for God, he feels distant from God. He yearns for God, but he feels forgotten by God. This is a guy who desires God's presence but feels God's absence. Ever been there? And then his sense of estrangement is even heightened because he's so far away from Israel. He writes this psalm from exile, far away in Palestine. And he's yearning as he remembers the day that they would come together um, and, and the joy, right? He says in verse four, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a, a multitude keeping festival. So see, he's longing for public worship. And... He's craving a renewed experience of that communion you get with God in public worship during festival season. And what you and I sat here experiencing this morning as the band played, did you guys feel the sweet presence of God move through this place? 
Yeah, man. It's thank you. <laughs> Songs of worship, the, the reminders of God's grace, the communion of the saints. He's thirsty for that. But it's not happening. Have you ever been away from God's people for a long time? I remember um, I was going to Bible school and my heart drifted far from God and I left. I ran as hard and fast away from God and his people as I could, chased God down to the bottom of a bottle. And um, I, I found myself one, one Sunday at home, Nancy was doing laundry, we weren't at church and it's a long time ago, man. And I, I drank, so, I drank a, a tall boy of cheap Albertsons vodka. It's not the way to do it. I can tell you, and uh, it got alcohol poisoning. I almost died. And I remember the next Sunday, I went back to what I knew. I went back to church, the church I'd grown up in. And I, I will never forget the feeling. First of all, the feeling of guilt and shame when you're first walking back in, you know? You feel like everybody's looking at you. But then that sweet presence of God as the songs begin to be sung and I could feel the love of God and the word of God went forth and the truth and the promises of God were declared, it overwhelmed me. And I remember like, why did I ever walk away from this? What on earth was I thinking? Now this psalmist, he's, he's not away from it because of his sin. He's longing for it, led away into exile. And, and that points out something that we need to take notice of today. See, it's possible for us to be thirsty for God, to seek God, to serve God, and yet at times to not sense the nearness of God. Instead, to feel the absence of God. And what's that result in? A downcast soul. Would you be surprised today that learn that, that many of the people we ex, um, respect and love from church history experience severe depression and downcast souls? Charles Spurgeon wrote the following, one of my favorite preachers and writers. He said, why I tell you young Christians that the most experienced believers, the men who have great doctrinal knowledge and much experimental wisdom, the men who have lived very near God, have had the most rapt and intimate fellowship with their Lord and Savior, are the very men who have their ebbs and their winters. See, Spurgeon was intimately familiar with those ebbs and winters. John Piper writes about Spurgeon in a biographical piece. He says, it's not easy to imagine the omnicompetent, eloquent, brilliant, full of energy Spurgeon weeping like a baby for no reason that he could think of. But in 1858, at age 24, it happened for the first time. He said, my spirits were sunk in so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for. Charles Spurgeon saw his depression as his worst feature. He said, despondency is not a virtue. I believe it's a vice. I'm heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it, but I'm sure there's no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. And later on toward the end of his life, Spurgeon reflecting on all those seasons of depression that he went through said this, this depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. Charles Spurgeon was very familiar with a downcast, troubled soul. And so was Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. On one occasion, he was so discouraged, which was not unusual for Luther, that his wife, Catherine, she got creative, and uh, one morning she appeared dressed in black funeral clothes. 
And uh, Luther hadn't heard of a bereavement. Yeah, he had been, and then he started the Reformation and broke away. And Catherine, uh, he said, Catherine, why are you dressed in black mourning clothes? Someone has died, she said. Died? I haven't heard of anyone dying. Who died? Watching you, she said. It seems God has died. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Anybody thankful for your wives? <laughs> hey, I want to say, like, have somebody in your life who can call you out. I love my wife. She creatively calls it out. She sees my blind spots, and I think I've got everybody fooled. And she's like, uh, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> have somebody in your life who can call you out. But these men, Luther, Spurgeon, Edwards, giants of the faith, these men were all familiar with the experience of the psalmist. And if that's your experience today, or when this is your experience in the future, these stories should give you hope. But more hope should come to you than anywhere from the inspired psalmist who God is speaking through. His soul is downcast. He's thirsty for God, passionately seeking God. He longs to experience communion with God, yet his soul's in turmoil trouble because it seems God's forgotten him. He's more aware of the absence of God than he is of God's presence. And the result is a troubled soul. But that's not the only thing troubling him. Look at verses six and seven. Instead of the joyful sounds of temple worship, he identifies in verse four, all the psalmist seems to hear is the roar of the waterfalls. Look at what he says. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. These waters symbolize trials and suffering. These waterfalls and waves and breakers are relentless and overwhelming and just keep pounding into him and the sound of this waterfall and these breakers is deafening. So he's not only aware of God's absence, but he's very aware of the presence of trials in his life. Maybe today you can relate. Maybe you're lonely today. Maybe surrounded by this crowd of people, you feel alone. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now, kids by now, and you're wondering, when is this ever gonna happen? Maybe you're familiar with a debilitating sickness, a chronic sickness. Maybe life's throwing you some curveballs broken relationships or job loss or crippling circumstances, whatever it is, your soul's downcast, it's troubled, you're in turmoil and those trials like waves, like waterfalls and breakers are just crashing over you and overwhelming you. The psalmist is downcast because of the seeming absence of God in the presence of trials. And thirdly, in verse three, nine and 10, he says, he's also troubled by the opposition of man. They say to me continually, where's your God? And he says, why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? See, his soul is downcast in turmoil because of the oppression of men. And that same oppression comes to us. It can come to us in the form of the spiritual or the physical. It can come in the form of the demonic. In the form of the fiery darts from the evil one taunting us on a daily basis, arguing with us that not only is God invisible, but he, he seems pretty inactive in your life. 
Maybe he doesn't exist. If he does, maybe he doesn't care about you. You appear to be abandoned by God. You appear to be forgotten by God. And just like the psalmist, we're familiar with those tormenting thoughts, those secret fears that we're suspicious at times might be true. When we look around at our circumstances and our trials, we begin to assess things. Sometimes our trials seem more tangible than our God. And the opposition comes. It comes to us all. The opposition comes in the form of individuals as well. If you look at if you're honest about your faith, you will know opposition. If you identify yourself as a Christian, if you identify yourself with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you identify yourself with the authority of Scripture, you will experience opposition. Because part of this culture is hostile to God and His Word. And regardless of how humbly you hold your position, and I pray you do hold your position humbly, never self-righteously. But regardless of how humbly you hold it, you will experience to some degree opposition from this culture. Opposition, it's inevitable. We live in a culture hostile to all we believe and proclaim. Hostile to the notion that absolute truth may actually exist. Hostile to the masculinity and femininity as defined in scripture. Hostile to the prescribed commands of God for sexual purity outside of marriage as defined by scripture. Hostile more than anything to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the way to be reconciled to God. Regardless of how humbly you hold these positions, you're gonna know opposition. You're gonna know opposition from relatives and friends and, and classmates and teachers. You'll know opposition, and that opposition can overwhelm you. It can, it can cause your soul to be in turmoil. That's what happened to the psalmist. As the psalmist conversed within himself about the seeming absence of God and the presence of trials and the opposition of those around him, his soul was troubled, and these themes kind of got woven together and formed this ceaseless conversation within him. So what did he do about it? How did he respond to the unending conversation within his soul? And that brings us to point number two, the hopeful soul. When your soul is troubled and in turmoil for any reason, what is the appropriate response? Well, the psalmist models the appropriate response for us. And if he were there here today, he'd tell you personally, when your soul's troubled, talk to yourself and talk to God. Talk to yourself and talk to God. First, Talk to yourself. See what the psalmist does? The psalmist does not, first of all, he doesn't like serve himself pout soup, right? He doesn't wallow in his pity, right? Or his sorrows. He doesn't like endlessly review everything going on wrong and the state of his soul. He doesn't like play the victim card and everybody's against him, right? No, he doesn't do that. Yet on the other hand, he doesn't ignore it either. He doesn't ignore his soul. He doesn't excuse his soul. No one said, what's he do? He interrupts his soul. He interrupts this internal conversation going on within his soul, and he challenges his soul. He proclaims truth to his soul. He argues with his soul. He gets involved. He rebukes and exhorts his soul to trust in God. And this, this ultimately makes all the difference in his soul, and it will make all the difference in your soul as well. Too often we neglect this timeless spiritual practice of soul talk, of talking to ourselves. 
But you can read more about it um, by one of my favorite pastors of all time, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. Read it. If you can find it, read it. It's actually free online. Um, And in it, here's here's a quote I'm going to read. He says, I say to you, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Do you realize what that means? I suggest the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. They point to the fear of things awaiting you. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? (laughs) Yourself is talking to you. (laughs) Now this man's treatment, he's talking about Psalm 42. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. You hear what he's saying? The main art of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You've got to take yourself by the hand and lead yourself to truth. You've got to be able to speak the truth of the gospel, the promises of God to yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. Gospel yourself. You have to say to yourself, hey, why are you cast down? Why are you despairing? What business do you have feeling hopeless? You have to learn to turn on yourself, as it were. Reprimand yourself. Rebuke yourself and say to yourself, hey, you, hope in God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Getting Pentecostal. I love that quote in here. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let me ask you, have you realized that? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to this reality, this fact that you are listening instead of talking to yourself? See, what we have each day is two options. As life is coming at us, we can spend the day listening to ourselves, listening to our souls, riding the roller coaster and the ever-changing feelings and emotions and circumstances of life, or we can spend each day talking to ourselves. We can talk truth to ourselves. We can address our troubled soul with the truth of Scripture. And guys, this takes effort. This takes practice. This takes perseverance, right? Most of us have spent years listening to ourselves and have rarely talked to ourselves. Talking to yourself is a learned skill. It requires practice and effort. It's not just going to happen magically without work. Taking truth and, and applying it to your heart and your soul requires effort that is motivated by and dependent upon the grace of God. And one conversation with yourself won't be enough to change everything. Why? Because our souls don't naturally cooperate, do they? They kind of have a mind of their own. The Bible says the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, just without getting off on a soapbox, let me just say, I, know, I love that our culture said, hey, follow your heart. I know what people are trying to say there, but guys, don't do that. <laughs> it's bull, all right? Lead your heart with the truth of God's word. 
your heart is subjective and given to the, the ever-changing emotions of your circumstances. If you follow that, it's going to lead you astray. You got to speak truth to your heart. And where do you get that truth? The word of gosh. Oof. And that repetition is, is illustrated in this psalm. Look at verse five. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you again and again. And then look at verse 11. He repeats, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see the repetition? Talking to yourself requires perseverance and repetition. Like the psalmist, you've got to persevere with this practice in order to experience the change from a troubled soul to a hopeful soul. And understand this, many of us here are reaping the effect in our souls of listening to our souls for years rather than talking to our souls. But there's good news. That's this morning, this moment. You can begin talking to your soul. You can begin sowing truth into your soul. And if you do, you will reap the effect of truth in your soul in the future. You will. Now, if you're convinced of this, and I, I hope you are convinced by the psalmist, if you employ this practice by God's grace, this will transform and make a huge difference in your life. But then the question comes up, what do we say to our souls? Right? More good news. The psalmist gives us kind of a template. He gives us basically a starter's kit for talking to your soul, a roadmap for this conversation. It's kind of laid out in the psalm. Look at verses 5 and 11. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here's the content of the conversation with your soul. Hope in God. Begins by telling your soul to look outward and to look upward. Right? I, I, if you have friends in business, and maybe you even do this, actually self-talk is, is quite a big growing piece of our society. I have several friends that are, are in business and they you know, look in the mirror every day and recite affirmation statements to themselves, you know, mantras. Um, and, and it's, you know, just stand in the power stance kind of thing. <laughs> That's not the power stance. What's the power stance? Does anybody know it? It's like this, right? This is my power stance. <laughs> I, felt, I felt like we need a laugh break there. I just, it's heavy, right? <laughs> kind of reminds me of that... Um, you guys remember Stuart Smalley? Yeah. SNL? He'd stare in the mirror, you know, daily affirmation. He'd stare in the mirror and say, People like you. And you're smart. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Every day. <laughs> and here's the deal actually, self talk can be a healthy practice, but where it can fall a bit short at times is when it becomes man-centered instead of God-centered. Self-talk can focus on our own projection of reality instead of the truth of God's reality, right? It can make us the center of the universe instead of God. So, so ask yourself, right? Because we want to be careful. What, what? Am I actually pointing my soul to truth right now or some false version of it, right? When you speak to yourself, are you trying to pull God into the center of your universe? Are you looking upward and outward to God and to hope in God or are you trying to find a way to hope in yourself? 
See, the psalmist doesn't look for hope within himself. He looks for hope in God. He's aware of God's sovereignty and faithfulness and kindness. And the psalmist is convinced that God will intervene. In his perfect time, God will fulfill his promise. So he refuses in this moment to be governed by the subjective. He refuses in this moment to be governed by the circumstances and feelings and emotions. And that's a wise policy. Aesop, the philosopher, said, never trust the advice of a man in difficulties. Guys, that includes yourself, right? Troubled souls, our troubled souls can't be trusted. And on top of that, our circumstances often lie to us. Our circumstances would tell us that God isn't sovereign. God isn't wise. God isn't kind. God isn't active in your life. He's not present. He's not for you. He, he's forgotten you. By God's grace, we must not be governed by our souls. We can't afford to be governed by the faulty interpretations of our circumstances. We've got to hope in God. We've got to wait on God. We've got to be convinced that God is sovereign and faithful and kind. And we've got to be persuaded he will fulfill his promise to us. So the psalmist addresses his soul and exhorts his soul to hope in God. In verse 6, I love it. He says, remember God. Because guess what? God hasn't forgotten the psalmist. It's the psalmist who's forgotten God. He's got to remind himself. So what do we say to ourselves when we talk to ourselves? We remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel and the promises of God. In other words, get your mind off your circumstances and get your mind on God. Who is God? What has he done for you in the gospel? What truth has he said over you? Who are you now? What's your gospel identity? How have you been freed to live and to hope and to see life? Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and that brings hope. And one of my favorite parts in this, the psalmist says, I shall again praise him. At some point in the future, I don't know when, I will behold the goodness of the Lord. I shall again praise him. Circumstances presently may hide his hand. Emotions may blind my heart, but hope assures me that I will eventually see him. It reminds me of Job. You guys remember the story of Job? Lost everything, even his health. And in the middle of Job's 40 chapters, right smack dab in the middle in chapter 19, he says, I know that my redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. See, God's word inspires faith in the middle of your trouble. God's timeless truth reminds you of his character, regardless of the circumstances. The gospel gives you every reason to hope in God. Charles Spurgeon says, when you cannot trace God's hand, you must trust God's heart. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And I love this because he just keeps the psalmist, keeps reminding himself of his relationship with God. My God will save me. The God who initiated this relationship with me. The God who formed a covenant with me. The God who promised he will finish the work he began in me. This God will save me. He's my God. He's bound to me. He loves me. Nothing else is stronger than the grip of his grace and love at work in my life. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. 
That's what you say to your soul. You remind your soul of the truth of God's word. By the grace of God, guys, stop listening to your soul and start speaking to your soul with the promises of God. Start talking to yourself. And that will transform your soul from a troubled to a hopeful soul. So talk to your soul. And lastly, briefly, talk to God. Verse eight, he says, and I love this because he turns this prayer into kind of a song. And he says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist remembers God's word. The psalmist rehearses God's word. He prays God's word and he sings God's word to God. Think about that. His troubled soul becomes hopeful as he addresses God with his own word. And side note, I just, I love this reference to singing because you've already experienced the fruit of this this morning. You've already experienced the fruit of proclaiming truth, God's truth back to God and to your own soul. As we say, that's why in corporate worship, it's hard to be depressed. It's hard to feel negativity. Why? because we're surrounded by the truth and promises of God seen together. I wanna to tell you, if you're ever down, if you're ever depressed, if you're struggling in your soul, don't avoid church. Get around God's people, gather together in your missional community, in the, in the gathered uh, Sunday gathering of the church, get together and sing and proclaim God's truth. We need one another, amen? amen. Yeah. The reason we're rarely troubled in the middle of corporate worship is because we're talking to our soul and singing truth to our soul and we're talking to God and singing to God and the effect upon our soul is hope and joy and trust and awareness of God. God wants us to humbly but boldly remind him of his promises. What are God's promises to you? Do you know that? As you scour the scripture, do you do pour over the promises of God to you? What does God say? God's given promises to you. I'm gonna read one last quote. And it's because every time I read Spurgeon, I cry. And I'm gonna try not to cry. When I'm, but there's like a transference of faith whenever I, I read his writings. So I wanna I want read this to you. I hope it does for your soul what it did for mine. Charles Spurgeon wrote the following about God's promises. God's promises were never meant to be thrown aside as waste paper. He intended that they should be used. Nothing pleases our Lord better than to see his promises put into circulation. He loves to see his children bring them to him and say, Lord, do as thou said. We glorify God when we plead his promises. I, did, I didn't put this up there, but um, I'm gonna read the rest just because it speaks to me. So um, just bear with me. Do you think that God will be any the poorer for giving you the riches he's promised? Do you dream that he will be any less holy for giving his holiness to you? Do you imagine he will be any the less pure for washing you from your sins? He said, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Faith lays hold on the promise of pardon and does not delay saying, huh, I wonder if this promise be true, but it goes straight to the throne with it and pleads, Lord, here is the promise, do as thou hast said. Think not that God is gonna be troubled by your importunately reminding him of his promises. He loves to hear his children longing for him. It is his delight to bestow favors. He's more ready to hear you than you are to ask. 
It is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne and say, Father, do as thou hast said. That is exactly what we're being exhorted in the psalm to do. To talk to God and remind him of his promises. And listen, the more time you spend talking to yourself and to God, and the less time you spend listening to your soul, the more you'll experience a joyful and hopeful soul rather than a downcast soul. And let me just be the first to confess, I don't do this all the time. Um, There are times when I do and I experience faith, hope, and love as a result, but often in my life, I'm overwhelmed by trials and temptations. Often in my life, I find myself listening to my soul rather than speaking to my soul. And I preached this sermon years ago. I've been trying to practice this for a very long time. And yet, I still fall so short. I often find myself more influenced by my unbelieving soul than by God's timeless truth. But even in those moments, I have so much hope, and I'll tell you why as we close. You can't read this song without remembering someone else whose soul is troubled. Our Savior's soul was uniquely troubled as the cross drew near. In John 12, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we overhear a similar cry. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. See, the Savior's soul was uniquely troubled and sorrowful as he envisioned the impending encounter with the wrath of God as a substitute for your sin and for my sin. On the cross, he would be crushed by the Father's wrath against our sin. He would be forsaken by the Father and cry out in indescribable agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the psalmist felt forsaken by God, but the Savior was forsaken by God. The psalmist's soul was troubled because he felt abandoned by God, but the Savior's soul was troubled because on the cross, he was abandoned by God, so you and I would never have to be. The psalmist felt crushed by the waves of trials of a sinful world, but the Savior's soul was crushed under the righteous wrath of God for a sinful world. The psalmist was downcast and depressed, but the Savior would be cast down into the depths of our depravity, the Bible says he became sin who knew no sense that we could become the righteousness of God. The psalmist's soul experienced a temporary turmoil and torment, but the Savior's soul experienced eternal torment so that the souls of people like us can know freedom from the fear of eternal torment. He was punished so we might be forgiven. He was abandoned so we might never be forsaken. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can lift our voices and we can sing aloud about the steadfast love of God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we can say with the psalmist, now informed by the cross, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your good news. That while our hearts and our souls were dark and lost and wanted nothing to do with you, 
you said, I will do anything to have them for myself. You set a price on us, nothing less than your own death on the cross, your, your own blood spilt out to pardon us from all of our sin and all of the times that we wanted to be our own lords. All the times we put ourselves at the center of the universe. For all the times our sinful thoughts led us away from you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you that today because of that, on this side of the cross and because of time, we didn't spend as much time over here as I'd like, but we have so much hope in you. I pray that we would continually remind our despairing souls of the hope we have because of the cross. Holy Spirit, remind us of your truth. Free us from the lies, God. And let your truth set us free into life, to the full, abundant life that you came bringing. I pray that those of us who are carrying around heaviness in this place, that we would be able to give our burdens to you. As the song said, lay it all down. Lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. I pray for those of us who are struggling with things in our soul we don't even know the cure for. Depression we can't seem to shake. Anxiety that seems to overwhelm us and we don't even know where to start. First of all, give us the strength and wisdom to continue enduring as, as, as those waves and the waterfalls crash over us, Father. Give us more persistence. Give us more ability for every time one of those waves crashes on us to speak the truth to our soul and bob back up. Lord, let a, let a joy, a gospel buoyancy be born in our souls that keeps our heads above water. Free us, God, from the struggles and the temptations to despair and help us to hope in you. May your gospel set us free and may we see you as more attractive your hope is more attractive than anything else we're holding on to. I pray for healing in this place today. You're a healer. I pray for people who are bound with anxiety, depression, fear, shame, guilt, all these things that are keeping their soul bound up, tight-knit like a ball, and they, they can't experience freedom, and they carry around a heaviness in the, in the pit of their stomach. Lord, free them today. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move and do a work that we can't do on our own. We believe you're a healer. And give us the faith no matter what you do, no matter what you foresee in our life. If you see fit to let us struggle with this a little longer, give us the faith to trust you in it and to grow by it. Like Spurgeon said, maybe, maybe you're preparing some greater thing for us through it. Help us to trust you even in the fire. Have your way today in Jesus' name, amen.